sound levels. Uh, test, 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 Kyle. Are you aligned? Are we aligned, Kyle? This is a big day. Darbycast Doctors, it's Wild Card Friday, and we've got a special treat. My dear friend, wildlife enthusiast, world-renowned, shark-diving, extinct <laughs> animal finding. Yeah, it's none other than my boy, Forrest Galante. Forrest, welcome to the Darby cast. You're here. What's up, Mav? How are you, big guy? Dude, I am doing exceptionally well. And, you know, welcome to the studio. This place is fully decked out. We just did a redo just for you. Dude, it's unbelievable. Like, you got Kyle over there just fucking running shop in this incredible studio. I mean, this is, I've been in a lot of studios. And, you know, when I compare this to Joe Rogan's, like, I'm like, Joe, do you live at Walmart? Because this is trash. Wow. Yeah, that's a fair call out. Joe's a, kind of a pauper. Um, a little bit of a simpleton when it comes to podcast setup. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, on the Darby cast, I like to do a little bit of a backstory and give people a sweeping overview of who's who at the zoo. So like tell the people for those of the folks, the Darby cast doctors who don't know you grew up in Africa, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. Correct. What was it like? Can you maybe tell us a couple stories from your childhood? Because that is a little bit distanced from most people's upbringing. Uh, yeah, that's fair, definitely true. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the Southern African nation of Zimbabwe. Um, I lived in the bush pretty much my whole life. My family ran safari businesses and we lived on a farm. So I was just always out in the bush. And it's a very, very different childhood from what most people experience here in the United States. You know, I remember the first time putting shoes on at about age six. I went to an all boys boarding school with prefects like in Harry Potter who were allowed to beat you with canes if you were uh, out of line. The older kids. Smart. Like, I don't even know where to begin. Like, there's nothing that is similar to schooling here is it like over there. You know, you start playing. Well, that part's similar. You start playing sports very young. If you have an altercation with a boy, the teachers tell you to go outside and box it out and, uh, it's kind of a, a hard, knockdown African lifestyle, and that's how I grew up, and I loved it. That's huge. I mean, I remember hearing stories of you being a bit of a ruffian, a bit of a rule breaker in your childhood. Also, you used to have to protect, it was your grandfather's farm from trampling elephants? No, it was our, our farm, our farm. Um, yeah, there was, uh, you know, there <clears throat> the area we lived, elephants would roam through here and there, and they'd uh, knock down the fences to get to the crops. and. When I was a kid, we had to run around on motorbikes and like throw firecrackers on the ground and make noise and hit the horn to keep them from trampling down fences and destroying crops. And that's just ethical wildlife management. One <laughs> is, you know, throw a firecracker at an elephant and you say, scram, big fella. Like, I've had enough of you. <laughs> Pretty much. I appreciate that. And so you moved over here when? Uh, age 14, 2001. I had to think about that. It's been a minute. And you got kicked out of school immediately. What was that about? <laughs> Don't tell the people these stories, Maverick. No, you got to uh, have it. I did. Yeah. Well, when I first came here, I uh, I thought, you know, life was going to be similar to Africa. And I rolled in with my chest puffed up. And day one of school, I had my old school uniform on. And when the teacher walked in, I like stood up and took my hat off and said, good morning, sir. And everybody laughed at me. And I was like, oh, all right. You're going to laugh at me, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, 
Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I went outside and I think some kid kind of made fun of my accent and I clocked him in the mouth and I was like, you know, straight to the principal's office. And I was like, wait, you're, you're not allowed to punch kids here? And they're like, no, don't hurt people. And I was like, oh, wow, well, we're really soft in this place. And uh, called out USA. Yeah. And like I got a warning because it was day one. And then like an hour later, I pulled a pulled a, a pocket knife out of my lunchbox to cut my apple up and then was back in the principal's office and, you know, and, and didn't get a warning, got sent home and then came back the next day and I forget what happened. But something happened where I was back in the principal's office and like I got suspended like week three. I was and not for doing anything wrong, just trying to live life the way I'd always known, you know, like somebody says something bad, you stand up to them and, and you, take a and knife you pull and, out a knife, you brandish the knife and you say, listen, like, I'm gonna hit you in the tummy with this. Uh, that's the thing is I never even considered the knife to be a weapon. At no point did that ever cross my mind. It was a tool that I'd had on me since I was a little boy, a tool that I took to school with me every day in Africa, like every other small boy in Africa. It never crossed my mind once that it was a weapon. I never I was happy to literally take on anybody at school and at no point would a knife come out. You know what I mean? Like that just never, never even put two and two together. Like a knife is for food and fists are for fighting. Well, yeah. I mean, if you run into a juicy green apple and you're like, I'm a peel guy and I want to get just that (laughs) kind of nutrition in me, how else are you going to, you don't want to be the guy gnawing on an apple like a beaver. So I totally get that. Uh, yeah, that's one way to look at it. <laughs> like, what what an absolute pro. And, like, just a quick little aside. I remember a fantastic knife guy story okay. about you. We were at a nice little steak dinner. And the waiter <laughs> decided that he was going to be forgetful that evening. And he didn't bring you a steak knife. And you just whipped out your knife because you're a knife guy. <laughs> you whipped it out and you started doing damage on the steak. And then the everybody at the table is like, oh, my God. Where was this? I don't remember. This, this was a number of years ago in Santa Barbara. I believe it was at Lucky's. A group dinner or family dinner? It was a group dinner. Oh, yeah, we're great. Yeah. So just, you know, just a couple people relaxing. You whip out a four-inch knife uh, with a nice little, uh, could have been a Kershaw, just a nice American-made steel. I was a Kershaw. It's usually what I carry. It's yeah. on me right now. Yeah, just good guy 101, bring a Kershaw. And then the waiter came back. I was like, sir, I forgot your knife. And you were like, yeah, you did. <laughs> and then you declined the knife. And I think that entire little anecdotal story really speaks to your character about not only you being resourceful, but you stepping to the beat of your own proverbial drum. And so (laughs) you've done that for pretty much your entire life. I know you as somebody who is outspoken, adventurous, (laughs) and you're just like, listen, I want to get something done. And I mean, that kind of segues into what I want to ask about your professional career, where you are going around the world, you're finding extinct animals and essentially resurrecting them, at least in the sense of the scientific communities, the way that they would delineate resurrection, because we are not calling you a necromancer, (laughs) but you, sir, are doing some serious stuff. Of the animals that you have searched for over the course of your Extinct or Alive, that's the show on Animal Planet for all the Darby cast doctors, over the course of that show, what was the most difficult find first and what was the find that you're most proud of? And if those are the same thing, you run that story, but if they're different, give it a whirl. 
Sure. Um, yeah. So I don't know if resurrection is necessarily the word I'd use, but yeah, I, uh, so what I do for a living is I, I work on sourcing out animals that could be wrongfully deemed extinct and attempting to locate them because once an animal is declared extinct, all funding, all conservation efforts dry up for it. And that's really sad if there's a handful of these super rare individuals left. And, um, anyway, I like finding rare things. So I've surprisingly been very successful in that field because it's something that, you know, if you say go find an extinct animal, that's like saying go find an alien, right? It's something that nobody's ever been able to find before, unless you speak to Bob Lazar. Um, but uh, What a call. <laughs> Just the Bob Lazar. All right. All right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've been really successful at that. So, you know, I think I think they're two different stories. I don't think they're one. The hardest animal to find was probably the Rio Apoporus caiman presumed extinct, rather missing crocodilian species for the last 35 years that occurred in a FARC gorilla-controlled Colombian Amazon. And the reason this animal was hard to find was not because, like many of the other animals, it's hard to locate. The reason this animal was hard to find was not because it was hard to locate in the jungle. All of them are hard to do that or they wouldn't be presumed extinct. This one was hard to find because of the human element. The reason the animal had been missing for 35 years was because this part of the Amazon jungle was controlled by the FARC rebels. Now, the FARC rebels are notorious freedom fighters from the Colombian Amazon who, you know, are most notably, were most notably under the pocketbook of Pablo Escobar. And so they're, they're, they're some pretty bad guys. They do a lot of kidnapping, a lot of murdering, a lot of robbing. And there's blow involved. And a lot of cocaine dealing. Yeah, so I found out that uh, there was at least a temporary ceasefire between the Colombian government and the FARC rebels. I was like, this is our opportunity. Let's go. You know, a couple gringos with cameras. I don't know what that has to do with their war, but let's try not to get murdered. So we uh, we Why went not? down there and bribed the right and the wrong people and grabbed a DC-3 cargo plane from World War II that was practically held together by duct tape and flew into a cocaine dealer's airstrip in the middle of the Colombian Amazon and met with some FARC rebels who promised not to murder us as long as we didn't film what they were doing. And then we went 100 or so miles up this very small tributary to an area that we were told a lot of kidnappings used to take place and hostage negotiations. Great. And then we found an extinct caiman, and then we found 30 of them or so. Like, we just kept finding them all over the place, which was incredible. And I, I think what made that the most challenging was not the physical elements, and I could talk about that from other expeditions or even this one, where, you know, we're always getting sick, dysentery, sunstroke, heat stroke, all those things. Those happen on tons of the expeditions. But this was just challenging because at any given second day or moment, it seemed like the FARC rebels could just change their mind and kidnap or murder us if they so chose. So that was that was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So if they just got a little too much of the Colombian bam bam in their system and then they're feeling a little loose magoose and they decide to just say, you know what, gringo and his and his pals, like we don't care about science as much as this guy. Let's just riddle him with bullets. That no, didn't happen. I, I don't think it was anything to do with the, the Colombian bam bam, so to speak, because they uh, I mean, they were doing Jopu and, and coca leaf the whole time we were there and it, it was good for them. And it was fun. And it was it was their morning coffee, so to speak. Wow. But uh, but it wasn't that it was more like, you know, if they thought we were pointing the camera at their nefarious activities or if they had any suspicion about why we were there, if they had seemed we were reporters or thought that we might tell the Colombian government where we were or where they were. Anything like that were to occur, you know, if we were to give them the wrong impression at any point in time, because it's not like we were hanging out with them. They were just in the same region as we were. So if they had come under the inkling that uh, 
you know, we were there to cause any kind of trouble. Bunch or, of narcs. Right. If we had been narcs or if they had thought that our value was great to be held as captives, because, I mean, the last group that went into the Rio Apicoros region of, of the Amazon was a French expedition in the 70s, 80s, 70s or 80s. I can't recall. Um, Kyle, would you go ahead and check that? Thanks, Thanks buddy. They were all held for ransom for around, I think it was around a half million dollars each of like eight people. So, you know, we had to convince them that even though we had, you know, a million dollars worth of camera equipment with us, we we were worthless. <laughs> um, Smart. And uh, yeah, I don't know. They were great. You know, they were they were some of the nicest people I've ever had the, the luxury of working with, all things considered. But yeah, there was definitely a danger element associated with that. I love that. So that was the most difficult one, but it was not the physical elements. It was just simply guys with AK-47s chewing coca leaves. How did you manage to convince them? Is your Spanish decent? Did you have anybody with you that you wanted to just be like, permítame ustedes, no somos un threat. Um, <laughs> oh, um, oh, my famoso. my like, Spanish is okay. My Spanglish is better, but we are medic who's like this awesome dude named Josh. He's like five foot five. He's this tiny little uh, Mexican guy. Called out. Um, yeah, but he's just like this little badass dude. But he's Mexican and he speaks perfect Spanish. So he acted as a translator. And uh, I don't know, it just it just worked out. Like, I don't really have a reason to it. I mean, we brought candy for the kids in the village. You know, we were actually there with the Indians and I did some weird green powder blow as a blessing. Um, I remember that video. Yeah, that was rough. So um, talk about that, because that was possibly some of the most wild and entertaining footage that I've seen of you. I remember talking with one of, well, actually two of your crew members, Mitch and Johnny, who said that that was just one of the most visceral raw experiences that they've ever witnessed because they weren't quite going through it. They just saw you. Well, no, they did it as well. They just didn't have the reaction I did. And so talk about that reaction. Kind of describe the process that yeah. the shaman and his blessing that he was trying to throw into yeah, the system. Yeah, yeah. So we got out of this DC-3, this cargo plane. And if you're asking yourself what a cargo plane is doing flying into the middle of Colombian Amazon, you're an idiot because it's pretty obvious. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, a call. We got out of this cargo plane on this dirt strip in this Indian village. And I was like, hey, all right, guys, like we need to go up the river like we kind of planned ahead of time. And they're like, oh, the you can't. And I was like, well, why is that? And they're like, well, if you go up, the, you can't go up the river or you'll die. And I was like, well, that's nice to hear. And I was like, well, why will we die? And they're like, oh, because there's evil spirits up there. And I was like, well, you know, I've heard these kind of stories before. And then they're like, you can't go without the the village elder, the, the shaman's blessing. And I was like, ah, okay, well, you know, I'm I'm always one to be culturally sensitive to things like that. And what a good guy. Well, just growing up in Africa, I just I just don't believe in, you know, even though I'm a scientist who doesn't necessarily believe in the lore associated with it, I don't believe in disregarding their beliefs. And love that intercultural sensitivity out of you. I mean, it's not about sensitivity. It's just about respect, really. You know, you're in someone else's home, but um, tomato, potato. <laughs> you said it. But uh, yeah, so um, so we're about to go up the river and we hear you can't go. You're going to die, blah, blah, blah. And if you're going to go, it's it's very scary. Evil spirits, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm like, all right, well, how do we go up the river? And they're like, well, you need to talk to Lorenzo, the, the village elder, the shaman. I'm like, great. When can we talk to Lorenzo? Oh, Lorenzo only sees people after dark. So we have to wait around until dark. As nightfall comes, we get taken to the Maloka. Now, the Maloka is the biggest hut in the village. The village is only about, I don't know, eight or ten huts. 
Um, but the Maloka is standalone in the jungle outside of the village. It's big, huge thatch hut. You know, there's no electricity there. There's no running water. It's just, it's literally just uh, things made out of jungle materials. And we go into the Maloka and there's Lorenzo. We meet him and he's this very stoic, beautiful man. I mean, he's, you know, this true Amazonian Indian, just a beautiful human being, you know, lived his whole life in the jungle, never left the village, only knows, you know, the greater confines of his world, which are this village of maybe 25 people and this expansive jungle. What a stud. Anyway, I say to Lorenzo, in a lot more words than this, you know, I want to go up the river and look for this, this caiman, this, uh, this caiman Amarillo Trampalargo, this, this yellow caiman with the large nose. And then he says, yes, yes, I know it. It's very dangerous up there. And I said, well, I understand that. I've been told that by others in the village. You know, can I please go? And he basically says no. And I ask again and go by some idle conversation. He says no again. I ask again. And finally, he says, you can go, but you must have a blessing or else you will die. And I was like, oh, here we go again. You know, never heard this before. Wow. And uh, I'm like, okay, can we please have the blessing? And he takes out this, this green pow pow, which I believe was called Jopu. And it's some combination of ground coca leaf, some jungle roots. I don't know, just some weird looking green powder that's stored in a snail shell with a monkey bone. And uh, that's one of the healthiest concoctions I've ever heard of. You said it, guy. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, he starts passing it around and you have to snuff it through this monkey bone. And, and it, it, you know, I, my first crew member does it, Trevor, and he goes, oh, and you see his eyes go, his eyes fill up with tears and his face goes pumpkin red or pumpkin orange. And uh, I'm like, you're right, Trevor. He's like, oh, it feels like I have a chlorine on the brain. I was like, oh, that sounds fun. And uh, here's the thing. He's like, I'm not a drug guy. I've never actually done any like nasal drugs. I'm not in that camp either. I respect that. Yeah, I've never done it. So I'm watching my crew and they're all just doing this like soft little inhale. And I'm like, okay, that's how you do it, I guess. And uh, not like, even though I'm an observant guy, and it's funny because I never feel anxiety. I never feel like nerves or worry, but I got really anxious about fucking huffing stuff up my nose. And uh, so it gets to my turn. And instead of doing it like the soft, gentle way that everybody else did, I did the the Forrest Galante way, which is, you know, zero to 100. So I was just like, just like as hard as I could, as quick as I could to get it over with. And apparently that's really a bad way to do it. So um, I did it and straight away my breath was taken away. So I couldn't breathe. So I was just gasping for air. And it felt like the prefrontal cortex, like the zone in between, you know, in between your eyes and straight up into your forehead uh, was just burning like acid chlorine, like Trevor described. What yogis would call the third eye region. Okay. Sure. Go on. And uh, my third eye region was just melting with acid is what it felt like. And I couldn't breathe. I could not get air in no matter what I did. So I was sitting there gasping, couldn't get air in. And uh, I didn't want to be rude. So I quickly huffed the other side, probably at double speed because you got to do both sides. Smart. I did not want to ruin the blessing. Like I, I couldn't not do it. You know, it was a terrible thing. There goes that intercultural respect again. Which yeah, I, I just it's just like, I, you know, I would have if the guy told me to cut off a finger to go up the river, I would have done it. You out know? of respect. Like, I, well, out of I'm not I haven't come that far in a mission to not do it. So um, and this is what I do. So anyway, um, I do the other side and can't breathe. And it's like fucking brutal. About two or three minutes go by and I just turn the most yellowish green complexion I've ever seen on a human being. And I only know this because the guys were filming it on their cell phones and uh, hurled over hands and knees, all fours and just puked my brains out for about five minutes straight. And this whole time, I'm apologizing. I'm sorry, Lorenzo. I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's just stoic, silent, doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. And after a while, probably 15 minutes. 
I sit up and I get back in the circle and I am just, my head is just swimming. I am doing circles. I'm seeing stars. It's like something out of a cartoon book. Yeah, sounds great. Book. And, like the uh, exact opposite. and I, I keep apologizing. And eventually Lorenzo, he like holds his hand up to stop me from apologizing. And I stop talking. And he says something in his Indian language, which gets translated to Spanish by our first translator. And then from Spanish to English through our medic to me, because that's how the chain of communication went. And long story short, Lorenzo said, this is good. This is good. So why is it good? He says, well, you just got the evil spirits out. He said, if you hadn't have done that, you would have surely died. Now, keep in mind, I'm a scientist and I don't believe in that stuff. But what's interesting is I'm the one wrestling anacondas and catching caimans and dealing with venomous snakes in the jungle, not the rest of the crew. And I'm the only one who had that reaction. And we did some very dangerous stuff with some very large toothy predators up in that jungle. And I didn't die. So although I'm not really into the lore of it all, I don't really believe in, in the, the voodoo. It was interesting that, you know, he cleansed me, gave me permission to go upriver, and then nothing bad happened. We may not be having this conversation right now had Lorenzo not given you the monkey bone concoction up the face. It's certainly possible, you know, and I've had that I've had that thought before because, like I said, it's not in my core beliefs to kind of believe in voodoo, but it is interesting that they shook out that way. What a show. What an absolute show. So. I think that is just a heck of an experience. And I appreciate your willingness to say, yeah, like, give me the monkey bone. And of course, I'm going to do both sides. Who do you think I am? Some guy who's not going to do both sides. I and then, just, yeah, didn't want to. I mean, like, even if it was killing me, I had to do it in order to go. And how much do you just respect Lorenzo's stoicism to be the guy who stands there and, the word. and acts as though he's been there before? And he's going there again and nothing could rattle his cage because it probably can't. He's seen the spirits. Yeah, I mean, he was an amazing guy. Like, I don't know what else to, to say. He he knew exactly what was happening. It never crossed his mind that it was rude or disrespectful. It, it really didn't rattle his cage at all. It was just this guy's purging the spirits. And now, you know, if I hadn't done that, he was done, though. And that was to his core beliefs. There was no ifs, ands or buts about it. I think the world would be a finer place if we had more Lorenzos going around, I'm going to be honest with you. But let's go back because we just talked about the most difficult whodunit of them all. What's the one you're most proud of? Um, <clears throat> discovery that I'm the most proud of is probably the Fernandina Island tortoise. So when we went to the Galapagos, there is an animal there that had only ever been seen once in history, not like disappeared once. It had been seen once, period, by the California Academy of Sciences. 115 years ago now. And uh, that was the only specimen of the species that had ever been known, period. One single male from the island of Fernandina, a, the second most active volcano in the world, an island in the Galapagos chain, and an island, let's, you know, not, not to forget, which is a very finite amount of area. Sure. Anyway, in 114 years, the Galapagos Conservancy and National Parks had not been able to locate another one of these species. So I applied to come down there and look and this is in an island that no nobody is granted permission to actually go on to. So it took a ton of permitting and a ton of uh, the Galapagos is crazy. We had to go into quarantine and blah, 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 blah. And this is long before COVID. Anyway, we eventually got permission and got to go. And after three days of surveying on this island where the temperatures were hitting 122 degrees, there's no shade on the island at all because it's basically a giant volcano with like five foot tall shards of lava rock that are sharp as glass, literally melting and destroying our boots. I said to the other two scientists, I was like, I'd like to go to this area. And they're like, no, no, that's the wrong area. It's too low. You know, all the reports of that tortoise are up in the high country where it's 
it's slightly wetter because of the elevation. And we'd hiked up there the days prior. And I said, nope, I'm sorry. You know, my instinct says to go down to that green swath of vegetation down uh, by the water. Forest galante, extinct animal spidey sense. It was just flaring up in a big way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I do. And that's why I've built this reputation is I combine scientific understanding and expertise with gut instinct. And it's it's something that a lot of scientists have a hard time doing. It's something that a lot of people on the other side that just rely on instinct do. And somehow I found that sweet spot in the middle. And I'm not saying that I'm always successful because I'm, I'm far from it. But anyway, and I'm not trying to discredit those other scientists who were great. And I'm super stoked that they were able to uh, to be on our expedition and, and accompany us. But anyway, long story their short. Their hypothesis, you called it out and you said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and put the kibosh on that. Let's do things my way. You guys are a bunch of hacks. But you didn't I, I say did, that. I did. And, and, you know, I've never said this publicly before, but I did kind of tell them, look, you know, there was a point where uh, this actually happened in hindsight once we were having an argument. And I was like, you guys couldn't do this in 114 years. I did. Can you just give me a, my chance? And anyway, long story short. I love um, that. Yeah. I mean, it was a big call out. But, you know, anyway, look, long story short, we went to this green patch after a seven hour hike over brutal conditions of lava rock and heat. And uh, within an hour, I found this tortoise, the second one ever to be found. And the reason I'm the most proud of it is, well, one, the find was incredible. Uh, I was holding an extinct animal in my hands. I mean, that's hard to beat. Sure. Um, but secondly, you know, the, the Lonesome George was the icon of conservation. It was the last Pinta Island tortoise in the Galapagos. And the whole world knows that name because of how iconic he was for the field of conservation. He died in 2014, I want to say. Lonesome George, um, right. And fern, the animal that we found, is now the new poster child for conservation. So it inspired a ton of hope. You know, it was, it was honestly, it's not it probably is. It is the rarest animal in the world. There's one of them and we found her, you know, and it's literally the rarest animal on Earth. And that was that was my find. And so that's definitely the animal I'm the most proud of. Yeah. How could you not be? And like, let's, you know, based on what you just said, I want to pick up on something huge where doing something like that is entirely inspirational for the youth of the world who desperately need a little bit more excitement in their conservation education. And I think you are somebody who brings that because you have, you've had a lifelong love of exploration and wildlife and your enthusiasm for that is entirely transparent in everything you do. And I know you have a lot of kids who send you fan mail or will send you little Instagram DMs and be like, hey, I just made this project. I'm doing this. And that's got to be incredibly rewarding, too, knowing that you are a scientific beacon and a scientific icon with your status really tied to your works and you're doing amazing things. And it's just taking the imagination of so many people and saying, whoa, I wish I were doing something like this. And you have both children and adults alike where I look at myself, I've spent time in office jobs and then I'll look over at your stuff and I'm like, wow, this guy's tap dancing on the rim of a volcano. <laughs> and can you talk about what that means to you when you're really inspiring a lot of people? What has that felt like? And did you always this has never been your goal is to be inspirational because I know the hunt and the journey is more part of your process. But as an added benefit to what you're doing, how is that? How's that experience been for you? Yeah, it's huge. I, uh, 
you know, I get a couple hundred messages a day from everything from like six year old kids saying, you know, I'm having a Forest Galante themed birthday party where instead of hunting Easter eggs, we're hunting, you know, plastic animals around the yard to, you know, 80 year old men who, who tell me they've dedicated their life to conservation and, and uh, you know, watching my work has inspired them to, you know, college kids saying they're changing their major to go into the field. And, and right. that those couple hundred messages a day. I think that is actually probably the best part of my job and, and not because, yeah, like you said, inspiring people has never been a big part of mine. And, it's, and the hunt is not the reason either. It's not it's not that selfish drive for finding things. It's more, um, you know, I, I've given my entire life to conservation, but getting those few hundred messages a day and inspiring people to care means that what we're doing is working. And that's the biggest part of it. It means that we're inspiring a generation of people to care more about wildlife conservation and management. And I think the point that it's the most impactful for me is like, for instance, when I'm hiking up, and I say this for instance, because this is not a hypothetical, when I'm hiking through, you know, one of the most remote, isolated parts of Madagascar, in order to look for this extinct pygmy hippopotamus, and uh, I have one of the worst amoebic dysenteries imaginable where I'm projectile vomiting and something else out the other end at the same time. Let the bodies hit the floor. Yeah, having heat stroke, literally like the most miserable a human being could ever be, you know, three days from the nearest hospital. And I have the option to turn around or press on. The thing that makes me press on is the fact that knowing that if I give up, I won't inspire those few hundred people or those few thousand or million, whatever it is, people to care. And so, you know, I don't care that I lost 15 pounds on that shoot and, uh, you know, nearly died from this. Well, it's a great way to stay in shape. It is. But I, I that that inspires me to keep going is the is the point. Well, I love that. And you um, a lot of people probably don't know this about you. Maybe your closest followers do. But I know you as somebody who is beloved by the youth, but in the context, not just of animal conservation, but in rugby. <laughs> I thought you, you were going to bring that up. I yeah. had to. So <laughs> you, sir, are a youth rugby coach. And I know you've probably had to take some time off of that because of your glorious expeditions around the world. But talk to me about A, your background playing rugby, yeah. B, getting into coaching, and then C, enlisting me as an assistant coach yeah, that was a number of years ago, <laughs> even though I never played rugby. I'm also going to tell, tell a story at your expense while we do this. I'm okay with that. And uh, I know the one you're going to tell. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah. Uh, so one of the things that's always been important to me through my entire life is the sport of rugby. I played as a little kid when I came to the United States, gave me a competitive advantage in school because of my work ethic on the sports field. And I there was no youth rugby at that point in time. So at age 14, I started playing for a men's club. I went to college on a uh, on a rugby scholarship. I love the sport. I, I wanted to be a professional when I was younger. And when I graduated from college and was still living in Santa Barbara some years later. UC Santa Barbara was your alma mater. That's our alma mater. I know. I'm just calling it out because you're a great guy and this is about you. But That's, go on. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah, so there was no youth rugby available for the youth of Santa Barbara. So I started a program there because I knew how much it had helped me as a kid and I thought it would help others. And the program grew immensely. It went from about six kids in one year to about 100 kids three years later. And I was in over my head. I was overwhelmed. And this was just something I did voluntarily. This wasn't, you know, for money or for anything else. And the program did incredibly well. We've been the number one youth program in the state of California 
a number of years in high school and and under 14. Well, when you got that kid Hercules, you're not doing too bad. Yeah, yeah, no, Chris. Uh, yeah, he was what what an athlete. For, Give that kid a proper shout out because he's what is he on the Olympic team? He is. Yeah, yeah. Chris Noggle, age 14, six two. 220, maybe 6% body fat. Built like a house. Uh, unbelievable athlete. I mean, it, it's like, you know, at age 30 when I was coaching him, I would have been terrified to go up against him when he was 14 years old. I mean, right. what an incredible athlete and great attitude to boot. Anyway, at one point in time with this wonderful rugby program, I was in over my head and I said, come help me coach, you know, just be an assistant coach. Just say like silly Maverick, <laughs> just come uh, come help me coach, you know, uh, uh, I, I know you don't know anything about the sport of rugby, but just, you know, say inspirational things, help kids do push ups, shit like that. And you're like, yeah, bro, let's go. Done. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you show up and uh, you're wearing your tennis shoes like a real hack while the rest of us are in cleats. And, right. Um, I think you're wearing pants and rugby's rugby's a real short, short man's game. Boy, uh, is it. It is. Yeah, it really is. Um, anyway, and it's pretty funny and we're having a good time. And uh you're feeling big and tough and you're like, I'm faster than any kid here. I was really fast in my high school sports. And I was like, I guarantee you, you're not, especially knowing Chris was on the field and you line up with all the kids and I blow the whistle and I believe you came in last. You know, it's a process. <laughs> all these kids are superhuman. I remember they, they are superhuman. <laughs> I remember, you know, not just, I mean, my first intro to rugby, you took me to a Santa Barbara Grunions club Beachside Park touch match. Yep. And I remember seeing guys like Smeagol, Isaac, Josh Maloof. Yep. Uh, Tombstone. Yeah. Good, can, good name call. Can That's you great. just tell the people about Tombstone? The old guy? Yeah. Graveyard. Yeah. Yeah. Old Tombstone. What is he? Age 55? Like. He's older than no, that. Like age 65. One, Dude, he was like 100. Yeah. He's old. <laughs> he's old. He's Tombstone Timmy. Yeah. One foot in the grave for sure. And still still charging on the rugby field. And the thing is, you don't want to get hit by Timmy. Like Timmy Ahern will fucking, he'll lay you out at age 70. Don't be clowning now. Like, don't think that he's soft. He is anything but soft. And yeah, I mean, the Grenions men's rugby club, there's some great athletes in there, but there, there are a lot of wild cards all thrown together on one pitch. And I think that's why I fit in. I would have to agree with that. I think what bought me some street cred was on that first touch game. There was a pass, you know, backwards pass i'm a rugby guy i know i know about it <laughs> he gets going it. the other way it got launched like 12 feet in the air and your boys got some uh sniped it got some boosts i uh popped up snagged it and then sprinted it back and i remember your coach who i love i love this dude kevin battle yeah good old k bat he KB. was just like hey Nice springs, fella. You want to play with us? And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm in, sir. You don't turn down an invitation from battle. No, yeah, that's real. That's a real call. Yeah, no, you you did great out there. And it's a great sport, man. It's all encompassing. Everybody's friendly. I mean, if it wasn't for the sport of rugby, I think I would have got a lot more trouble as a high schooler and college kid, because it was a fantastic aggression outlet for me. And I, I tend to have a little bit of aggression, not not anger management or like aggression issues, but having that outlet throughout my youth when I was just raging with testosterone was uh, was definitely very helpful for me. Um, because Incredibly it high T individual. And I'm really surprised that a company like Nutrigenics or Androgel has not giving you that phone call to say, hey, do you want to be the poster child for high tea everywhere <laughs> in the world? Yeah, no, I'm OD'd on tea, that's for sure. But yeah, uh, what a show. I mean, <laughs> I, lo I love that. But, you know, to speak to your aggression, one thing that I've always been impressed with 
is exactly the way you described it, is it's not an anger. It's an aggression, and it's saying, I'm going to go after this no matter what. And some people might look at it and saying, oh, this guy is rash. He is moving too quickly. He's not concerned with enough stuff. Yeah, that's uh, true. Like safety. <laughs> but that aggressive pursuit, the way that you hone it and utilize it, makes you unique in your ability to take risks. And I think when you're going after these animals, case in point, all of your expeditions where somebody else would say, no, we should turn back. I want to go get a cup of hot cocoa and be a complete (laughs) tool. You're saying, no, 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 we have to do this. And you're fearless. And you joke about this on the Wild Times podcast. Everyone who is a DarbyCast doctor, if you have not listened to the Wild Times podcast with Forrest, Patrick DeLuca, and Retep, which is Peter backwards, (laughs) those three bros flat out get it. Yeah, we have but, a good time. But a running commentary, a running joke on that podcast is that Forrest is lacking an amygdala and a fear <laughs> response, which has been compared by the other bros on your show to an Alex Honnold before, uh, yeah. where it... An emotionless tool bag, yeah. Where, Please continue. Where you have an emotional range. I remember watching that movie Free Solo. He climbed... El Cap, he got to the top and his level of excitement. I think that was the most excited he's ever been in his entire life. It was the level of excitement that I get when I bite into a honey crisp apple. And I like, was literally going to say when I get a candy bar. I swear to God, I was, I was waiting for you to finish to interject that. Right. And it's just like, it's like, wow, this guy just has Nothing. not a lot going on inside. You are Weird. not wired in that fashion. No. I think you basically take the best of the fearlessness, and then you treat people well. He had not quite the same capacity, it seems as though, for tight interpersonal relationships where you got all of it. And boy, (laughs) I think if he ever listened to this podcast, he'd be like, oh, but then again, the way he's wired, he'd be like, yeah, checks out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can't speak about Alex Honnold. He definitely seems like a weird character. I've never met him. I mean, he's interesting for sure. But um, you know, the truth is I'm not fearless. I, I feel fear very much so. I think the definition, and I'm not saying that I'm super brave. Definition of bravery, hit me with it. Yeah, the definition of bravery is not being fearless. It's being being fearful and doing it anyway. And, Correct. Um, I love that. Yeah, and I feel fear very much so, you know. Like, I, if I didn't feel fear, I don't think I'd be, you know, shaking with, with cold sweats and adrenaline when I put down the 15-foot King Cobra that's just tried to kill me that I rescued. You know, things like that. So, you know, I know that I feel fear, but in those moments, I typically get so hyper focused that the fear doesn't I don't allow the fear to overcome the mission or my focus. I think that's one of the reasons I've been successful in how I operate is when I see something, I I act first and think later. And, you know, I take what I consider to be calculated risks. And anyway, this sounds like I'm just talking about myself here. No, but but that's honestly what I would compare that to. And I've had that happened to me a score of times in my life where I've been in an emergency situation where instead of getting rattled, I got hyper-focused. And so you tend to gravitate towards that mental space uh, incredibly routinely. Always, and, every day, literally not just in in like in working in wildlife, but you know, when when I want something, when I want to get a Shark Week show greenlit or commissioned so that I can work on these rare sharks, you know, I go into hyper focus mode where I don't know what's going on in my family life. I don't know what's going on in my friend life. 
all I do is research and writing to try and get it dialed in so that I can present this thing to get the the needle pushed forward so that I can work with these sharks, you know, and it just, it's how I operate in finance, in my business, in my wildlife work, in my personal relationships. I just get hyper-focused on the task at hand. Yeah, that is definitely my experience of you, that a lot of people, they see the outward facing, the videos, they see all of the amazing journeys and expeditions, but what they don't necessarily see, and I'm, I can endorse this entirely is your behind the scenes work ethic. So when you're out in the field, you you are dialed in, but when you are doing your planning, when you're doing your research, I have known you to have a laser narrow focus where you essentially have become unreachable, a quasi scientific hermit where (laughs) I would call it a healthy obsession. And I'm sure that it teeters occasionally into a place where it's like, Hey buddy, um, do you want to get a sandwich? And you're like, no, can't do it. But (laughs) I appreciate that. And I don't think that you would be able to do the things that you do if you didn't have that level of drive and you can't manufacture that and you can't fake it. That is something that is I don't know anybody else who is wired like you. And I think that is an impressive piece that a lot of people don't get to see. And I'm happy to endorse your sometimes maniacal work ethic that becomes, (laughs) it's larger than life. And I think it's worth mentioning and entirely impressive. Oh, thanks, man. I, um, I don't know where that comes from, to be honest. I do have a strong work ethic and I don't say that to just boost myself up, but it just, I've especially compared to, I think, other people that are generationally uh, my age and my, and my peers, is there seems to be a, a lack of work ethic. And I think maybe part of that is the technology and the tools and the society. But I, I like working hard. I really do. I, I, I love it, actually. I don't just like it. And I think that is a big part of why I work so hard. And I don't know. It, it's definitely been successful. And it's successful, like I say, in the field and, and in the desk, in the podcast studio right here with you. Right. Oh, amen. I I don't think people have that drive. And I, I will speak to your point and validate what you just said in, in that I think a lot of people are products of our environment, that we are pacified by our technology. That's a common theme that we discuss on the Derby oh, cast. It's a common thing that you and I discuss as friends over the phone all the time. Yeah. And there was a, a number of years ago, we tried to get a show made about digital addiction. Oh, let me be clear. We didn't try. I'm still trying. Every opportunity I have, I recirculate that because I think it's a, a serious thing that is plaguing our society and an important thing to bring exposure to. The new Netflix documentary. Um, the Social Dilemma. The Social Dilemma did a fantastic job bringing that up. And I, I love what, what uh, I don't mean to digress too much, but no, I, please do. I love what they went into with regards to how, you know, like the algorithms show you stuff you want to see and make you think that you're always in the right. And totally, um, you know, the amount of addiction that goes on to digital devices, it, it's astounding. It's flabbergasting. And you and I, uh, you in specific, were ahead of the curve in pointing that out, you know, five, six years ago when we first started talking about it. Right. Um, and I hope, I, I sincerely hope, that one day, whether it's it's us or someone else, can make that show and bring exposure to the digital addiction, because I think it's it's very unhealthy. Right. Well, you and I, and I don't know if whether divulging this concept is a humongous mistake. No, but you, you're, you're fine. Go ahead. Yeah. So 
I remember when we got together uh, back in Santa Barbara a number of years ago, and you and I, we sat down and you said, let's brainstorm some concepts. What problems do we need solving and how can we do it? And we came up with the idea that, okay, you are a primitive survival expert. You had just finished your stint on Naked and Afraid, still the highest scoring survivalist in that show's history. You were the season premiere, episode one of season two, and right. I would encourage everybody to go back and watch that. I would not. That. Don't watch that. It's garbage. <laughs> no, you go ahead, DarbyCast doctors. <laughs> Kyle, you remember watching that. It was great. It lit up your life. Kyle, do you ever speak? Kyle keeps it pretty casual. Yeah, He's clearly. a Man shake of, your head at me like he's that, a man Kyle. of few words who likes to surf and that's Dude, just weird guy. you know what he's a good guy with a big why heart. is he looking at me like that because kyle likes to size people up and okay. he often gravitates towards people who okay. he might think have huge hearts i think he wants to fight me kyle no, settle down he's shaking his head all right kyle settle down yeah it's all right so that was a weird we, interaction so we yeah kyle just lock it up a little bit um <laughs> sorry so we arrived on the concept that you are a primitive survivalist. I have a serious, it's a background and a passion project in helping people out in every job that I've ever found myself that isn't really related to the podcast or writing. I find myself helping people. And I realized that this digital addiction thing was a growing issue. And let me just say quickly, it's definitely got worse since we created this five years ago. This Not since we created, since we discussed this idea five years ago. It's 100%. definitely got worse, digital addiction. A hundred percent. please continue. And how could it not? Because the technology keeps getting better and better. All these companies are continuing to, and of course they are. They have the capital to pay for the best and brightest in terms of both their engineers, their computer scientists, as well as their psychologists. So they're finding ways to subtly change people's behavior and keep them engaged to serve them more ads because these I don't mean to interrupt you but would you talk about something that you brought to my attention that I didn't realize that they did actually touch on very briefly in the social dilemma which is how your cell phone is basically a slot machine in your pocket yeah so what that is is it plays into the gambling dynamic of what's called a variable schedule of rewards and so when you're playing with a slot machine it's the same input every time. You're pulling the lever or the lever, depending on where you're from. It's a lever. That's a big call out. And you never know what the output's going to be. Very much like with the vibration on your cell phone or the tone playing out of your cell phone. So you could get that little notification, that vibration in your pocket. And what are you going to do? You're going to pull out that phone. And that text that came through could be anything. It could be the person that you've loved the most for your entire life saying like, I'm pregnant, which would be a heck of a piece of news. <laughs> That'd be quite a text. I, right. hope, I hope that would go for the phone call. Or in person. That seems <laughs> more appropriate. It does. It could be somebody saying, hey, so-and-so is not doing so well. Or it could be, and this is my least favorite thing in the entire world, it could be part of an ongoing group text with far too many people that none of the information pertains to you. And so with that input being the same, the output varies. And then every time you receive that notification, there's probably a whole slew of other notifications 
that you're going to look into, and that's going to keep your attention captivated for any length of time. And it really varies, but the longer you use it, the more addicting it is. And you start to live more of your life through that portal and through that lens. And to discuss this as if I'm somehow not a part of it is not (laughs) the case because I grew up using computers from a very young age. I'm 32, almost 33. But my grandma got me on a computer for the first time when I was four years old. That's insane. I never even saw a computer until I was 14. Right. So I was ahead of the curve in terms of my technological usage. And you're a disaster. Like, look at what happened to you. Right. Like, (laughs) boy, you said it. So your case in point, ladies and gentlemen. The difference between my usage of computers and technology from the time that I was very young versus a person who, say, was born 10, 15 years ago, is, boy, has the captivating technology been turned up to an astoundingly absurd degree where you don't stand a chance. So I even struggle with putting the phone down from time to time, more often than I'd like to admit. And so I think about my mental faculties as somebody in middle school or high school or college. I've always been a little bit emotionally immature. And when I say a little bit, I'm being very generous to myself. So I don't know how even the most well-regulated kids or the not well-regulated kids, at least from an emotional standpoint, are dealing with this because I didn't have the mental toolkit. If I were in high school and the level of technology that exists now were out there, I think I would never go outside. Yeah. Oh, it's insane. Uh, You know, I'm so... I've said this before. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just going to I'm done with my, my okay, spiel. Okay. So, p- p- pardon me. I just you you sparked a thought for me which is that I am so glad that I grew up in a time and place where I didn't own I never had a TV in my room. You know, we had a TV in the family room. Never had a TV in my room right. like most kids do. Never owned a video game system, never had a computer, never had a Game Boy. You know, I grew up without any of those things. And uh I'm glad because I don't think if I had sat inside and played PlayStation instead of going outside and playing flip the log over and look at the weird worm, I don't think I'd be where I am today. I really, One of the better really games don't. around like that's flip the log and, and check the worm. Yeah, that's a game. Yeah. Old as time. It is. And as fun as it gets. Well, this Maverick, this has been an absolute treat. I, I wish I could stay longer, but unfortunately, I have an appointment in five minutes exactly. Um, so I'm going to have to jump off, but thank you so much for having me here in the studio. It's been an absolute treat and I, I can't wait to come back. I appreciate the heck out of you. I know all of the Darby cast doctors are going to positively love this episode. Great. I love it when we can get together in person. You have been a tremendous friend for a number of years and I appreciate you taking the time and Kyle appreciates it in a big well, way. He's literally shaking his head at me. Kyle, we're going to have to work on your manners. You've been spending too much time indoors. He's texting. He's texting right now. Kyle, professionalism. (laughs) But that's going to do it for today. DarbyCast doctors, Forrest, thank you again. And hopefully we'll chat with you soon. Good night. And, you know, thank you. Brother.